Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca Hamlin to discuss her new book, Crossing, How We Label and React to People on the Move, published by Stanford University Press in 2021. When policymakers, advocates, journalists, and academics talk about people crossing borders, they often distinguish between refugees and migrants, even though they know this is a legal fiction, a simplified binary that may limit protection for vulnerable people who are not protected by the rarefied category of refugee. Dr. Hamlin's new book argues for a confrontation of the binary and the effect it has on our study policy, and conversation about border crossers. Her book traces the development of the refugee concept in the context of sovereignty and colonialism and provides insight into the scholarly fault lines, the historical and current role of the UN Refugee Agency. And the book provides rich case studies to distinguish how the binary works in both the global North and South. Dr. Hamlin also challenges the scholars and advocates to move beyond the binary despite perceived risks. Dr. Hamlin is Associate Professor of Legal Studies and Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her research focuses on law and immigration politics, specifically migrant categorization and the concept of refugees. And I am delighted to welcome her to New Books in Political Science. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, Today, we're adding another feature to the podcast, which is that we have uh, a specialist in um, crossing and thinking about these categories. Dr. Lamise Abulati is an assistant professor of political science at the Maxwell School of uh, Syracuse University. And I interviewed her on her book, Discrimination and Delegation, Explaining State Responses to Refugees, a couple of months ago, and she's going to be here to ask some questions and help us really get to what is so important about this fabulous new book. Uh, I just want to say, Rebecca, that you have a moment in the book in which you speak about the scholar and the average person, and I had to smile because I thought, okay, good, we're going to have a podcast where Lamise can be the person who has thought about these categories her entire career. And I am happy to play the average person who has been listening to the NPR that uses these binaries. And I'm somebody who studies legal fictions. I was so thrilled to see your discussion of Fuller mm-hmm. and legal fictions, but not these legal fictions with the kind of specificity. So, so thanks for writing to both those audiences. And I hope that this format can really help us get at what's so relevant uh, and important about the book. So first, let me ask you, like, what motivated uh, the writing of this book? How is it related to or come out of previous scholarship? And I, I really want us to get a sense, and you do this in the book so beautifully, but for the audience, you know, the evolution of the field of refugees studies and how it's integrated into political science and history, sociology, and other, other fields. Great. Well, so there's a long longer answer to this question, which is that it comes, the book comes directly out of all of my previous research. So for many, many years, I've been thinking about the concept of a refugee 
as a legal concept, as a social idea, as as a word that we use colloquially, um, that comes up very often in public discourse in the media, but is also a very, very important word and concept because it has a very distinct legal meaning. And so my first book looked at refugee status determination policy, which is policies for that people seeking asylum um, go through a process that decides whether or not they are um, eligible for refugee status. And I looked at that, those policies in the United States, Canada, and Australia, and the way those policies evolved over decades. And one of the biggest takeaways that I had from writing and researching that book, that book was called Let Me Be a Refugee. One of the biggest takeaways was that the concept of a refugee is very politically constructed. And so there's no secret answer to the question of whether an individual person is or is not a refugee, the answer is in the eye of the beholder, which is often the state, the government, the bureaucrat that's making the decision in an individual case. And that was one of the sort of core findings of my first book. And it's been something I've been thinking about for a long time. The more immediate sort of impetus for writing this book was the unfolding events of the summer of 2015, when um, many of us were watching with horror as um, people were trying to cross the Mediterranean. And um, famously, in particular, Alan Curdy, a small child washed up on the shores of Greece and was um, lying dead. And that photo went, you know, viral around the world. And this was a crisis that had been ongoing in the region um, due to the Syrian civil war already for half a decade at that point, but became a crisis in the eyes of Europe when people were coming directly to the territory. And so what made me really think about this uh, binary, as I call it in the book, between migrant and refugee was the way in which the media reported on this moment. And, and also the way in which the media was simultaneously reporting on arrivals at the U.S.-Mexico border coming from Central America. Um, and there was this flurry at that time um, in the summer and fall of 2015 of what I call explainer articles. So about every news outlet there is had ran a piece that said, migrant or refugee, what's the difference? Who, what are these people coming to Europe? Are they migrants or are they refugees? And all of these, and this is something Lemis and I have talked about at great length and have even written a little uh, piece for the Washington Post at Monkey Cage blog at that time about this issue, these explainer articles are woefully inadequate because they basically just say, oh, this is a very difficult question because there's so many different kinds of people coming and it's very hard to know what they really are. Um, here's the definition of a refugee from international law. <laughs> and then that's sort of like the end of the article, as if knowing the legal definition helps us understand what on earth to do in this incredibly difficult moral situation. 
Before you go on, because I know you haven't really gotten to the part about how you know, the scholarly community works on these issues. Just remind, since we've got such a, a vast audience of some specialists, some generalists. So what, what is <laughs> the definition? Okay. okay. Well, right. I, I mean, with the proviso that the, the definition, the binary is something you're fighting back against. Let's put it this way. In general, when we're listening to NPR or even to reading a great academic book, what, what are these two definitions and, and why is the legal uh, status of refugee? Just really briefly, the, the one that is the prize. So in 1951 is when the, the existing, the current definition that we use in international law was created. There have been previous versions. There have been many different iterations of this. But the one that has lasted now more than 70 years was codified in 1951 um, by the UN and um, a group of leaders from various, mostly European countries, got together and wrote um, a convention that has many, many different aspects to it, many different articles that talk about the rights of refugees. But it begins in Article 1 with a definition, which basically says that uh, a refugee is someone with a well-founded fear of persecution owing to some uh, feature, uh, some characteristic like their um, race, religion, political opinion, or membership in a, a particular social group. And also a refugee has to be someone who is either unwilling or unable to um, turn to their government for protection. So they lack the protection of their home government and um have a fear of returning home um, due to some aspect, some core aspect of their identity. And so that's the definition in international law that was getting published in all of these articles and um, is the definition that most all receiving states that have signed the convention are using when they're going through this process that I mentioned before of refugee status determination. They're basically looking at the individual in question and holding up their life story to this definition to see whether that person meets the standard. Um, so often, you know, it's a very individualized, it's designed to be a very individualized process, which is obviously quite a different, difficult undertaking when we're talking about mass arrival of um, people who, um, some of whom are going to quite obviously fit that definition and many of whom are not or are going to be a more difficult or complex um, relationship to that definition. Okay, so I'm happy to jump in now and ask you some questions, Rebecca, about this book. And I just... Um, Sort of to start, I just want to note what a well-researched, well-argued, well-written book this is. And it was really a pleasure for me to read. And even though these are issues that I've been thinking about for a while, I really learned a lot um, from your book. <clears throat> so I just want to invite you sort of at the top. You've given us the definition of a refugee. Do you mind just explaining what the migrant refugee binary is? So for people who buy into this binary, what does the prototypical migrant look like? And what does the prototypical refugee look like? And why do you describe it as a dangerous legal fiction? 
Great. That's that's actually the perfect question to follow on what I was where I was going before with these explainer articles, right? So the thing that was frustrating to me about all these articles is in in them they're basically making the legal definition of a refugee do an awful lot of moral work, right? So there's this assumption then that if if people are refugees that they are obviously deserving of protection and care and attention and that we those are the people we need to worry about and everybody else um, is less of an obligation or less of a concern. There is no official legal definition of a migrant in, in international law. It's sort of the remainder, right? It's often thought of as like not refugee. Um, but in the book, what I talk about is the way in which migrant is often constructed in a, in a more insidious way with the assumption that there's someone who is not forced like a refugee, not compelled. They're making a choice. They're economically motivated, right? They're, they're traveling to better themselves financially. And they're, they're not, um, they may be vulnerable in some way, but not in a way that we should feel responsibility for. And a refugee is someone who is helpless, vulnerable, often this is the way they're constructed. Um, I mean, as helpless, as vulnerable, as um, utterly compelled, um, and often politically motivated, right? So this is a very um, liberal in the classical sense definition that really constructs this hierarchy of suffering whereby being ideologically persecuted, not having the freedom of thought and expression is the worst possible thing that could happen to a person. And um, all forms of sort of material suffering are far less significant. And so the migrant refugee binary, as I call it, is this way of thinking about there's two kinds of people who cross borders. The vast majority we owe nothing to because they're self they're they're self motivated and they're economically motivated. Um, the second category is the rare um, but very needy and very significant and important person who needs political protection. And this is a dangerous legal fiction because a it doesn't actually match with reality. So I didn't do all of the empirical research that I drew upon in this book, but there's a ton of it out there to suggest that people who are crossing borders today, perhaps more than ever, are come for a whole host of reasons, which combine in interesting ways, which uh, change throughout different stages of the journey, um, and also which sometimes can feel extremely compelling, even if the reasons are solely, quote unquote, economic. Um, so it's a dangerous legal fiction, A, because it does not actually map very nicely onto reality. But also it's dangerous because we use it to, like I said before, do a lot of moral work. We assume that it is the concept of a refugee is morally neutral because it exists in international law and it is there for the taking. We can say, what is the answer to the question, who do we owe an obligation to? Who must we protect? The answer has already been settled in 1951. And it just so happens that it's the very rare 
um, person who's coming is who we owe obligation to. The vast majority of people don't fit with that definition, and therefore we can sort of wash our hands of them, and we don't need to worry. We owe nothing to them. And it's not a decision that we are making in this moment. It's been made for us, and therefore we're sort of absolved of any of the fallout from that decision. And I think that's very dangerous. Legal fictions are, are part of life, right? You have to have you have to make a decision somewhere. You have to decide who do we owe an obligation to, and that's going to end up being a binary. We're going to cut the group somehow unless you literally welcome every single person. But if there is no active acknowledgement of the ways in which this category is politically constructed um, to privilege a very particular type of person, then we are not having the difficult conversations that I believe we need to be having about the difficult choices that we're ultimately making. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, So one of the things that comes across very clearly in your answer and also in the book is um, the, the fact that this distinction that people make between different types of border crossers, it's not just a semantic issue, right? But it has implications for how border crossers are treated, right? So thank you for clarifying that um, also just now. So in the first chapter of the book, I think you provide the beginnings of a very persuasive argument um, for why we need to move beyond this migrant refugee binary. And you lay out three assumptions that underlie this binary. One of them you just addressed, this idea that refugees and migrants have distinct and distinguishable motivations. There are two other assumptions that you lay out in this chapter. One of them is that refugees are the neediest border crossers. And the other is that true refugees are rare. So you talk in in this chapter about the the reasons why you think these assumptions are not warranted. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, why you think we need to let go of these assumptions? Sure. I think about these three assumptions almost like the three pillars of a stool, maybe, that are propping up this what I call binary logic. So they they really go together and they feed into one another. Um, So the first one I mentioned, right, my whole, my first book was really all dedicated to unpacking this assumption and showing, you know, this idea that, that it is easy, easy to create any kind of process of regularized inquiry that's going to sort um, refugees from non-refugees is a very difficult undertaking. And um, the, the messy gray middle is where all the action is. And that's why states come up with very, very, very different answers to this question, even when they're using the same definition and even when the same kinds of people are coming to their shores. So that's the first assumption, that the idea that, that refugees and migrants are easily, that they are distinct and that they are distinguishable. I think that's much more complicated than is often assumed. The second um, assumption which is, is is that refugees are the neediest amongst all border crossers in the world. And again, I think the empirics complicate this story. And, and especially given the headlines that we're dealing with today, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. Some of the neediest people in the world will very easily fit with the definition of a refugee under international law. Don't get me wrong. But there's also a whole lot of other people out there in the world who are displaced for various reasons, who, will, who have very little to no hope 
depending on the nation they've arrived in and how that nation constructs the definition of a refugee, little to no hope of getting refugee status. And yet here they are, right? They're very, very vulnerable and needy. There's also this matter of matching needy people up with various legal categories, right? There's good evidence out there in the world that some of the neediest people and who perhaps could maybe access the definition of a refugee never do that because it's too difficult, too expensive, too complicated. They migrate under different auspices. Um, And that some of the people in the world who are actually able to access refugee status, particularly in the global north, are privileged in some way. And I know that that's sort of a difficult pill to swallow. But when you think about who is likely to be able to get out of a very difficult or dangerous situation in their country, to access papers, to access social networks, maybe to get themselves even out of a refugee camp. It's not the most desperate people in any of those situations. It just isn't going to be. And so when we think about, oh, you know, a person with refugee status, we assume they're some of the most desperate and needy people in the world. That's actually possibly, it's a lot more complicated than that. I will, I will just say that. And then the third thing is this notion that refugees are rare. There's been this stable number um, over time that the data suggests that out of all the border crossers in the world, refugees are about 8% of the total. But this is the logic on this is very circular because we're counting people who have been given the status. And they are potentially the tip of a very, very large iceberg. And there's no way to actually know how many people in the world might qualify, even for this very limited and exclusive status, if they were able to actually be considered in a a very uh, careful and individualized way. We'll never know the answer to that question. It's simply impossible because those people are not going to be given the consideration. Um, And so I think this assumption that refugees are rare is upheld by the fact that the wealthiest states of the world have constructed this extremely elaborate apparatus to make it almost by definition impossible for the vast majority of needy and desperate people in the world to access the structures through which they can get the status and then be counted. So, you know, it's like building a cage and then saying, um, look, very few people were able to actually get inside. Well, yeah, (laughs) but that doesn't mean that very few people um, might actually qualify if they were able to access the territory. So it, it feels like a bit of a, a setup. And um, I think we often cling to these official statistics from UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. But there's all kinds of uh, problems with those numbers that I talk about a little bit in the book in terms of the incentives that states have to actually count and report um, and Lamise, you probably know much more than I do about this in, in, in some of the global South states. Like, what are the incentives to claim people on your territory as refugees and report them to UNHCR? They can be, th- those incentives can be pretty warped. So bottom line, we just don't know how many people we're really talking about. It's a much more, in all three of these, um, you know, prongs of binary logic, the story is much more complicated than we usually give it credit for. Right. And I really appreciate how in this chapter you 
do such a good job of picking apart this binary, laying out these three assumptions and telling the reader, showing the reader how much evidence there is to counteract sort of these common assumptions that we have. In the next chapter, the second chapter, you get into the origins of this binary, right? Where it comes from. And you spend a lot of time talking about this concept of uneven sovereignties. Um, so briefly, can you tell us what you mean by this phrase? Sure. Um, so this chapter, <laughs> this is like under the hood maybe a little bit, but this chapter was the hardest one for me to write. It took me forever and I wrote it many, many times and I'm still, I don't know, not as happy as I want to be with it because it's such a difficult thing to un- to, to trace out the origins of a concept. <laughs> but I and, really- and Rebecca, I just, uh, not to interrupt you, and we want you to admit that on okay. new books and political science. Yes. And the reason is that we have so many people listening who are in the throes of writing <clears throat> their own books in which they have to rewrite something or revisit mm. it or just feel like they can't get it right. And and we we want the readers to understand the kind of work that goes into scholarship at this level. And we also want to provide like a support mechanism for for those of us who are are also in the trenches trying to figure out their own version. So thank you for being so honest. I'll just say it took the same amount of time as the other five substantive chapters put together (laughs) to write it. Um, And sometimes life is just like that. But I'm glad I persevered and I had the help of some great colleagues who read multiple versions of it. But um, what I wanted to do in this chapter was to trace out the concept of a refugee and because... And, you know, I think everybody who, who has ever written a book knows what I'm about to say, because I had an ax to grind. <laughs> I had something that had been bothering me for 15 years of reading the scholarship. This is back to your earlier question a little bit, but reading the scholarship in my field of forced migration or refugee studies, it's a sub subfield that's fairly distinct and isolated from migration studies that has often treated the concept of a refugee as essential, as something that people, the quality of refugee-ness, as I call it in the book, as something that people are either born with or not. And this feeds into this first assumption of binary logic that people, that the that there's categories of migrants are, are distinct and distinguishable, right? So this assumption that the concept of refugee is something that some people have possessed throughout all of time. And I really struggle with this notion because it seems to me that the concept of a refugee is something that was constructed alongside the notion of a sovereign state because a refugee is the one exception to the rule that sovereign states have the right to control their borders and keep people out. And it strikes me as a fairly modern invention. And that's not to say that there haven't been instances throughout human history of people seeking refuge and being granted refuge, but that's quite different from this concept of sovereignty and the relationship between a person seeking refuge and a bounded territorial state. So it was something that I wanted to very much explore and I spent an entire summer, 
I think it was the summer of 2019, basically reading every single book I could get my hands on about the history of the concept of a refugee. Thousands and thousands of pages. (laughs) And what I did not anticipate going into this book, but which hit me like a ton of bricks when I started reading was, it's, it's so tied in to not just the modern state, the colonial state, the imperial state, the European state. And that's where this notion of uneven sovereignties came from. Because I suddenly realized, how is it that states are talking, states in Europe are talking in the 1700s all the time about sovereignty and territorial boundedness and the right to protect a bounded territorial sovereign state. When at the exact same time, these states are going all over the world, traipsing about, trampling on borders, ignoring the concept of sovereignty in, um, in all of the places where they, where they land. And so I had to go and do a whole bunch of research about the origins of international law. And this is something that has existed for many years that I've been familiar with, but I didn't get as deep into it until I read this book. And, you know, a, a huge shout out to the, the world of Twail scholarship, which is third world approaches to international law. There's so much good stuff out there. Um, but it really helped me to understand, oh, the concept of a refugee is only possible in a world of uneven sovereignties where some people's, uh, some countries grant themselves the right to control their borders and, and simultaneously grant the right to decide what the exceptions to that rule are, while other people's displacement around the world is never, ever considered to be a refugee movement. And so one of the examples that I talk about in the book is the colonization and settlement of what we now call the United States where the people leaving Europe thought of themselves as refugees. And we often talk about them now as a historical example of refugees. And the people that were violently displaced and dispossessed upon their arrival, we never think about or talk about as refugees. Um, A huge shout out to an amazing book that I actually read after I finished this book. And so it's not in here, but um, by Claudio Sound. And I'm blanking on the title right now, but it's about Indian removal. And um, in that book, he calls uh, Indians refugees. And he really reclaims and uses that term. The book came out around the same time as my book, and I'm so excited about it. I'll look up the title. (laughs) We'll have, we'll have it linked in the, in the blog. Okay. And I, and I just want to put in a footnote, which is when Americans tell their story, they only emphasize the refugees, and my scare quotes can't be seen, of the pilgrims because of religious persecution. And we don't tell the same story about Jamestown. And that's because those people are assumed to have chosen to join an economic enterprise to make money. And we, we don't tell that story to children. We don't tell that story to ourselves because it's a very different story of, of acquisition and it is missing that liberal uh, narrative that you mentioned earlier about the oppression of ideology or the inability exactly. to practice religion. 
But the very idea that the pilgrims were not also economically motivated and seeking their fortunes, I mean, come on, that's definitely what they were doing. <laughs> no, no, absurd, of course. Mm. I'm just saying that we can even just see the play out in how we tell the story in this very binary way. Anyway. So, I completely agree. Um, and I wanted to just say that I really appreciated how, I think it's in this chapter, you talk about of the collective amnesia around colonialism and, and the role of colonialism in um, creating these categories, but also the role of colonialism and neocolonialism and persisting legacies of, uh, of colonial exploitation in generating displacement, right? Um, so moving on just a little bit, the rest of the book um, does a really good job of looking at how and why the binary, the migrant-refugee binary, persists in different settings, right? So you have a chapter on academia, a chapter on the UN Refugee Agency, a chapter on the Global South, then Europe, then the United States. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, why did you decide to organize the book in this way? Great question. Um, I thought about it in my mind as exploring the lives and homes of the binary. So where are the places where it seems to manifest? And I thought, you know, first look at the origins, look at the history. I knew that chapter needed to come first. And I just hope people, you know, stick with the book. If they get bogged down in that chapter, keep going. It, it definitely becomes a little less um, historical and um, probably a little more fast paced after that. But um, then I wanted to take on, the field of academic study, because so much of what we know and so much of the secondary scholarship that I then rely on in the rest of the book is shaped by the fact that the field, the fields of, on the one hand, migration studies, and on the other hand, refugee studies have so long been separate from one another. And personally, I have struggled with this fact as a scholar, just selfishly being frustrated, like, which conferences do I go to? Which journals do I publish in? You know, which um, people do I cite? How do I situate myself as a scholar when I refuse to, acknowledge, to, refuse to identify as one and not the other? Um, and so I wanted to really talk, I wanted to find out how did this happen, right? How did we get so far removed from one another? And how did the field of refugee studies become so siloed? So I, that's what I explore in the next chapter. And then I really wanted to put the Global South story before I talked about Europe and the United States, because it so often becomes, oh, yes, and also the Global South, if it's talked about at all in, this, in our field. And so I felt like it was really important to look at, oh, I skipped over. I also have a chapter between academic study and the global south on the role of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. And to me, those chapters flowed really well in that order because UNHCR has been, on the one hand, a driver of the siloing of refugee studies as a field that it's so closely connected to because of the revolving door between advocates and scholars interested in refugee studies. And then on the other hand, a real driver of um, trying to promote a very Eurocentric and 
uh, Euro-origined definition of a refugee in the global South and all of the complications of that um, advocacy. So that's why the, the, the chapter on the global South comes right after the UNHCR chapter. Um, and then I talk about Europe and the United States after that, because those are places where um, the binary has been a huge feature of public discourse just in the past, you know, five to 10 years. I could have talked about other places. I could have talked about Australia. I could have talked about the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar. Um, There's a lot of other lives and homes, but I I needed to try to talk about the ones that I felt best qualified to speak on. And I just want to say these chapters, these substantive chapters are so rich. We could spend a lot of time just talking about any one of them. Um, So we'll maybe just try to cover some of the highlights, right? One of the things that I really liked about um, your discussion of the field of refugee refugee studies is you um, emphasize connections between this field and uh, the policy and advocacy communities. Mm-hmm. And this was really interesting to me because, you know, my discipline of political science, there's often people, there's a lot of hand wringing about, you know, are we policy relevant? How can we be more policy relevant? How can we bridge the gap? But you talk about how in the field of refugee studies, there's kind of always been this close connection with policy and advocacy. Um, and you seem to indicate that this has actually been sort of to the detriment of uh, some of the scholarship. Um, so can you help us just understand some of these connections between scholarship and policy and what implications they've had for academic work on border crossers? So I think that, to be clear, the field of refugee studies has done a tremendous amount of really important work that has helped a lot of people. So I don't, I'm not trying to knock it in any way. Um, some of the centers for refugee studies that were founded in the eighties, especially the one at Oxford has been an incubator for an absolutely tremendous amount of really, really important research. And if the goal of the field originally was to raise awareness of the plight of displaced people and to provide you know, firsthand on the ground accounts oftentimes of the, the situation that they were in. And a lot of that work has been extremely useful and valuable to policymakers. So all of that is, is great. Along the way, because so much of the work was focused on emphasizing the distinct story of refugees. I think it fell into the trap of distinguishing itself from other forms of migration and making it seem like it was so conceptually different that it was, it lost the ability to have conversations with more general scholarship about migration, which also assumed that migration was economic and let the refugee scholars do their thing. And I think it hurt in both directions. I think it it was detrimental to migration scholarship as a general field um, because it didn't conceptualize um, non-economic motivations as well as it could have. And it was detrimental to forced migration studies as a field because it so often just defined the field using the definition from international law and has only very recently sort of realized that that's probably not a good idea and moved on. 
from doing that, but still defines the field by the forced nature of the migration. And um, I think there's a lot of opportunities lost there for us to understand the ways in which border crossing, you know, the things that various different forms of border crossing have in common, the things that various different forms of state response have in common. Um, so I want to be careful not to say that, you know, it's, it's not doing good work, or I just think I'm, I'm in favor of scholarly connection <laughs> and collaboration and, and, and cross fertilization. And I think that the siloing, because it's so um, heavily relied on the definition from international law and worked so closely with UNHCR, it um, s- separated itself more than it needed to. And the other thing that I think is a problem about the field of forced migration studies is it's so often because it's been driven by the interests of big international institutions has focused on the types of the, the, the instances of displacement that are of most concern to the funding states of the global North and has paid insufficient attention to instances of displacement that are oftentimes larger and more, more, um, terrible in terms of human suffering, simply because there wasn't that interest um, in the policymaking world in funding states. So that's a, that's sort of a second um, consequence of that close relationship with the policy world. I'll just agree that I agree with everything you just said and everything <laughs> you've mentioned in this chapter as also someone who's kind of struggled with where, where exactly to place myself and my work, right? Um, So in the chapter after that, chapter four, you provide a really fascinating analysis of UNHCR's social media strategy. Um, Why did you decide to focus on uh, on that, right, on UNHCR's social media? Um, And what are some of your findings about the kinds of factors that seem to shape their social media campaigns? So I noticed in the time that I was starting to really consume media about border crossing in 2015, 2016, that UNHCR was pretty active, getting more and more actually at that time, actively involved on Twitter, on Facebook, even Instagram. And that the messaging was very consistent that refugees are not migrants, that they are something else. And so in this moment where I was starting to feel more and more conflicted about the way in which journalism media was using and deploying the term refugee without enough thoughtfulness in my view. Then I noticed that UNHCR seemed to be doubling down on this binary and insisting upon it. And I thought, well, I need to know more about why this is the strategy they're using right now. There was a particular media campaign that I talk about in the book, um, called the Words Matter campaign, where all of these celebrities are, are sort of staring very intensely into the camera and saying, words matter. And um, I was like totally blown away by this campaign because I agree, <laughs> words do matter. But but the the notion of this campaign was refugees are not migrants and it hurts refugees when we call them migrants. And so we need to use the word refugee to describe the people arriving in Europe uh, across the Mediterranean. And I understand why this campaign was sort of created, but it was very troubling to me because I found, I I read it as 
saying implicitly, if they're if the person is not a refugee, then we don't need to worry about them, that they are not a matter of concern or care. And I know that was not the intention of the campaign, but the subtext, this sort of hidden message started getting louder and louder to me the more I looked at it um, and the more examples of it that I found. And so I reached out, I started collecting it. I had a research assistant help me and we just like scoured Twitter. We collected all the examples and it definitely was a pattern. And so then I reached out and said, would you be willing to talk to me and the social media team there was extremely gracious and welcoming. And um, I did a long phone conversation, but then I went there for a week and hung out and um, kind of just was there um, around them for a full work week in um, the spring of 2019. And, um, talked to a lot of people there and learned fairly consistently that this is something that they're very committed to, that the entire institute, it's not just one part of the organization of the UNHCR. It's an institutional logic. It's part of how they see, I say they see like an international organization. And that's a concept from the field of international relations, but they're oriented in the world to have certain ways of being and thinking and talking. And this is a core one for the organization. It it goes all the way down. It's not just a social media campaign. It's part of the core understanding of UNHCR, that they have a mandate to take care of one small slice of the pie. And they have to define that slice of the pie as a distinct and distinguishable part of border crossing. Otherwise, everything gets extremely messy and complicated is what I realized. Um, They don't want anything to do with the topic of global migration management because that is messy and complicated. Um, Whereas if they're able to say, you don't have to worry about everyone, you don't have to have, it's not open borders, don't worry everybody, all you need to do is just keep funding the work of protecting this small slice, right, Um, then they get to stay existing as an organization and um, the funding states of the global north will keep paying them to do their very important work. And so I understand absolutely why this is a logic that, that they're so reliant on and why it would be very messy, dangerous, complicated for them to unpack or undermine the binary in any way. So they, they turn out to be one of the forces working to prop up this binary more, most actively almost than anyone else. And then you realize that a lot of the journalism media is parroting the talking points coming out of UNHCR, right? Which also makes sense. And so it it helped me to understand um, one of the origins of the binary in the, in the current moment. Um, And it really helps, I think, to um, explain sort of this pattern uh, it helps to recognize, as you note in the chapter, who UNHCR's audience is, right, in their social media campaigns, that they're really targeting voting publics in the global north, right? Um, so I found that really, uh, really eye-opening as well. Um, so in chapters five, six, and seven of the book, you have this really rich examination of how the binary operates in the global south, in Europe, and in the United States. 
Um, you've talked already a little bit about the terminological debates in Europe in 2015, right? So I'll ask you about the Global South, and then I think Susan has a question about the United States um, and the Biden administration. So um, starting with sort of the Global South, um, what are some of the general conclusions you're able to reach based on the analysis of crises in the Global South that you conduct in this chapter? So what, uh, one of the things that really stood out to me in this chapter was the way in which countries of the global south, which, you know, again, I talk about how north-south is its own problematic binary, right? But we don't have time to get into that now, I'll just say. Um, but I think about the global south as places in the world that have been colonized. Many of, many of these countries are on, have been on the receiving end of um, colonial and imperialist policies in, um, for extended periods of time, and how some of these uneven sovereignties that I talk about in the second chapter still exist in the dynamics of um, the world today and, and help us to understand a lot of the way in which management of displacement crises in the world today are, um, is playing out. And so one thing we haven't talked about yet in this conversation is the way in which the refugee definition itself was written almost without the participation of any colonized state. Um, the ones that were involved in the drafting conversations in 1951, um, very few were, but formerly colonized states like India and Pakistan were involved and raised concerns and said, there's a lot of displacement going on in our countries. And we're told, no, 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 you're not the focus of, of what we're doing here. We're essentially over their quite vocal objections written out of the concept of a refugee right in front of their faces. And then we're less than inclined to participate in the proliferation of this international legal instrument around the world. And that even in 1967, when many people view the expansion of the refugee concept to include not just people from Europe, but people all over the world in the form of the 1967 protocol to the convention, which was like an addendum, even in that process, states of the global South raised the exact same concerns again, saying, well, but this definition isn't exactly describing what's going on in our countries fully. There's other forms of displacement that we need to be very concerned about, especially people who are going to be displaced because of the collapse of colonial empire and the fact that borders were drawn arbitrarily without regard for where people, um, people's ethnic affiliations may have been. All of this stuff was completely ignored yet again in 1967. And further, um, the Organization of African States attempt to write their own definition of a refugee was in many ways co-opted and sidelined by UNHCR, who did not want a competitor definition with the one that they were trying to promote around the world. And so all of the story, I feel like, is very undertold in our field um, and is very important for understanding what I now view as extremely condescending um, 
messaging around which states of the world have not yet adopted the refugee convention. So we often hear scholars and advocates in the global north talking about, you know, these recalcitrant countries who are not signing these documents, but without any acknowledgement of the fact that these quote-unquote recalcitrant countries often raised concerns and objections at every stage and have said time and time again that they do not feel that these documents are particularly relevant to them and are also in many cases hosting displaced people regardless of whether or not they have signed on to these conventions. And so there's a lot of complicated stories and politics going on um, around the world. Asia is the continent which is particularly in our field sort of held up as the least compliant. But, but I think that that is a very surface level way of thinking about um, protection dynamics in that region. Um, so that was a big motivation for me to talk about what the history and also the current moment in the global South. And then I talk about two, the, the two biggest displacement crises of today, which are Venezuelans and Syrians and contrast the ways in which those two groups have been discussed um, in the media globally, but also the way that these groups are labeled in their regions. And I, one of the things that I think is really interesting to know how UNHCR actually messages locally to local host countries, oftentimes calling people refugees in order to try to get local host countries to um, comply or not calling them refugees if that will help. <laughs> and then changing their messaging when they're talking to the global north. And again, all of this makes sense. I'm not saying that there's some sort of nefarious plot here, um, but it just... For me, it was helpful to unpack it all and pull it apart and see the very heavy lifting that the concept of a refugee does um, in lots of different places around the world. And I just want to underline that, you know, this conversation can't possibly capture the depth of research that is in every one of these chapters. And, uh, you know, you've, you've been clear about about the second chapter and how long it took you. But <laughs> reading through this book, there is no shortage of data uh, a really, really interesting combination of methods that allows you in each of these chapters to capture something else about this issue so that we can see it in its full dimension. So for those listening, we've scratched the surface here. We invite you to, to, to buy the book and to dive into uh, the chapters a bit more. Now, um, as we're concluding, Rebecca, I, I, I just want to note to everybody, we're recording on August 17th, uh, 2021. It's just uh, days after uh, the Taliban has taken over in Afghanistan. I've been reading the book over the last couple of weeks. Uh, this book is obviously aimed at addressing contemporary issues, not simply sort of uh, a theory that was once used that you're trying to take apart. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about how you think this book does speak to uh, our contemporary politics. And in particular, I was actually curious what you're thinking about the Biden administration's use of language and terms and policy and, and whether you actually see 
somebody out there who, in a sense, defies the boundary and does a better job of talking about border crossers and maybe provides um, an instructive example going forward? <sighs> well, I, I, I feel uncomfortable having a hot take in the face of all of this human suffering, but I will try my best. <laughs> Um, it's been. Well, very- I don't want a hot take. No, no, no. Okay. I, and I don't want to suggest that that that's the purpose of this. No, it's our all. job to apply our it, work to well, current well, events. Well, and also one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is this use of the word translation. Mm. So one of the things that you're concerned about is the ability and the duty of scholars to translate what it is they're doing yeah. to the public to make them understand. And the public isn't. Uh, is also journalists, is also, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I've been involved with this in my own field. It's very difficult to educate and re-educate people who have spent their lifetimes reporting from a nation and endangering themselves in order to get us this information, who don't understand that they are reflecting ideals that, that may actually distort their journalism. And so you're making, you know, like, that's a big lift. Anyway. Yes. Um, Handle the question any way you want. Don't take it as a hot take. I would not meant to it in any way that way. No, it was mostly just a caveat. But um, I think, unfortunately, what I feel likely to happen is this tug of war dynamic that I talk about in the mostly in the U.S. chapter of the book. Right. So we see people advocating for. We need to get people out of Afghanistan. We need to welcome them here because they're refugees. Um, And then oftentimes the response is uh, historically has been, no, they're not. And um, I think that's going to be very difficult to have as a discussion in this moment because it seems um, that a lot of the people, at least some of the people that have been most prominently trying to get out are people who have worked for the U.S. government and will absolutely be targeted by the Taliban and and will qualify in some way for a special immigrant visa or refugee status or something. Um, And what I've noticed in the past couple of days is the thing that I worry about in the American chapter of the book, which is what happens when this tug of war falls apart And the other side just says, puts up their hands and says, I don't care if they're refugees. I still don't want them. And I feel one of the things that motivated me so much to write this book is a fear of going to that place. That if you pull too hard on the idea of trying to insist that the person you're protecting is a refugee, you risk the other side saying, who cares? (laughs) Not our problem. And so I think... I feel like that's what's happening right now. And a reframe that I would really like to see is, and I've seen a tiny bit about of it in the past couple of days, is focus on not whether or not individual people in question qualify or meet the international legal definition of a refugee, but whether or not we as, for example, the United States, have an obligation to help people in a place that we have destabilized. Unequivocally, we did it, right? It's been destabilized for quite some time, but for the past 20 years, we've been there and we've been there on purpose and now we're leaving on purpose. And we knew 
that the destabilization would be an effect of our withdrawal. And so no one can tell me that they did not know that that there would be a lot of displacement in the aftermath of this. Everybody knew that would happen. And so now it's a matter of not talking about are these people refugees or not? To me, that's not the important question. The important question is, is there a moral obligation when a country goes into another place and creates some sort of havoc? And that analogy can be you know, extended to colonial legacies, it can be extended to neocolonialism, it can be extended to all kinds of military intervention. But in this case, it's a pretty cut and dried example of us going to a place and destabilizing it. And I think that needs to be much more centered in the conversation where we talk about moral obligation and actually, as I said at the very beginning of this conversation, have the hard talk about what we did and what we need to do. Well, Rebecca, I just want to thank you so much uh, for the book. I, I learned a ton from reading it. I won't listen to anything without now hearing this. You and can't that's, unsee that, the binary once no, you see it. That's a big lift. <laughs> no, that's a big. That's a really, really great contribution, um, and and I appreciate it. Uh, a couple of little thank yous here. Daniela Campos uh, at St. Joseph's University was the editorial assistant on this podcast. Thank you, Daniela. And uh, Dr. Rebecca Galemba is assigning your book to the students, uh, a chapter of your book, cool. and contacted us on Twitter. And um, shout out to her uh, and an encouragement to anyone who is assigning a book that we're going to do the podcast on. I try to always say that the day before. Please send us the questions that you'd like us to answer and let us know which part of the book you're assigning. And we'll try to do our best to make this podcast into a lasting resource uh, for you and your, your students. Um, Rebecca, I know you just finished a book, but uh, let's just end with what what comes next? What's what's your next project? What are what are you thinking about and or working about uh, on right now? Right now, I'm working on a project that really grapples with the intersection of immigration policy and indigeneity. So, um, coming out of this book, I've been really inspired to think more about um, the relationship between immigration to the U.S. and Native American policy, and I'm looking. At 1924, the Congress in the same week passed the 1924 National Origins Quota Act and also the Native uh, Indian Citizenship Act, which made all Native people citizens, whether they wanted to be or not. And so I'm thinking about this week in 1924 of inclusion, simultaneous inclusion and exclusion and how to understand them. Rebecca, do you have a uh, local brick-and-mortar bookstore in your neighborhood that you'd like to shout out somewhere where people can can go buy the book? Absolutely. I go to Broadside Books in Northampton, Massachusetts. Okay. Well, that's great. If you're there, go buy the book, support the bookstore. If you're not, we'll have a link to bookshop.org, which allows you to have delivered to your mailbox a book that comes from an independent, from an independent bookseller. I want to thank uh, Lemise 
Abdelati for joining me today and making this conversation even richer and listen for more podcasts from Lamise on coming editions of New Books and Political Science. Rebecca Hamlin, the book is Crossing, How We Label and React to People on the Move. Uh, it's published by Stanford University Press 2021. And thank you again, Rebecca, for taking the time to join us. Thank you. I had a great time.